Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. Well, when I was a young fella, Aotearoa, New Zealand was a very peaceful, quiet place. In those days, probably the most trusted institution in our society, for middle New Zealand at least, were the police. The thought of a policeman being corrupt was unimaginable. In those days, we didn't have a police complaints authority to independently investigate the police because we didn't think we needed it. Then in 1970, Jeanette and Harvey Crew, these people, who farmed in a place called Pukikawa between the Waikato and South Auckland, went missing, leaving their baby in a cot. It was a huge deal, because in a peaceful place, not much like this happens. Shortly afterwards, their bodies were pulled out of the Waikato River. They'd both been shot. The police investigation was massive, and a nearby farmer called Arthur Allen Thomas was charged with their murder, this guy. This case became this huge media cause celeb for the whole decade. It was seldom out of the news. As a boy who wanted to be a lawyer when I grew up, I just devoured it. There were articles, there were books, there was even a movie. Thomas won his appeal against conviction, had a second trial, and was again convicted. Another appeal was unsuccessful, and for there, for most people, the matter rested. The complaint that the police had planted incriminating evidence was regarded by most as preposterous. Just did not happen here. In 1979, which was my year nine, our then Prime Minister, who'd always been a bit troubled by this case, got an independent QC to review the whole thing again. And the QC reported back that the conviction was unsafe because despite police evidence, they had never actually conclusively established the time of death, which meant that Thomas might very well have a very strong alibi. The Prime Minister, based on this report, advised the Governor-General to exercise his royal prerogative of mercy and grant a pardon to Thomas. Subsequently, there was a Royal Commission of Inquiry which found that the lead detectives in the case had, in fact, planted evidence, and Thomas was awarded compensation. Is it coming back to you, those who were around in those days? And when they went up to Thomas in the prison, where he'd been for the previous 10 years, he had a very good question, and he said, well, what does a pardon mean? It it, it sounds like I'm being forgiven for my wrongdoing, and I... I haven't done anything wrong. And it was explained to him that the effect of a pardon was to declare him to be legally innocent, despite 
his previous conviction for these crimes. The effect of his conviction was removed. And so the presumption of his innocence was restored. He was no longer guilty before the law and his community, which he could now rejoin. Now there are people to this day who are around in that era who will tell you that Thomas was as guilty as sin. And I understand from many police that's an article of faith that he was. You may have gathered that I'm not one of them and you'd be right. But that's no longer the point. He had been declared to be innocent and that is the end of the matter. Same with David Bain, acquitted at his second trial. The reason I'm telling you this story is that in a very real way, this is what Jesus won for us on the cross. A pardon. It puts us in the position as if we had never sinned. The text today is from Romans 3. But now, irrespective of law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what law? By that of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now if you're sitting there thinking, what? I don't blame you. I remember as a younger Christian finding something in Peter, one of Peter's letters, where he said, Paul can be a bit confusing and a bit hard to work out. And I thought, I'm glad you said that, because that's certainly the way I feel. But anyway, I'm going to try and unpack this. But there is a lot in it. Now, when you read words like but, or therefore, or thus in the Bible, that is begging you to look at what was said before. Something's been said. And listen to, so listen to this from Romans 3, 19 to 20. After Paul, ranting in verses 10 to 18, that none of us, whether Jew nor Gentile, are any good. And he concludes with this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth might be silent and the whole world might be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Nobody is going to measure up to God's standards in his law. In fact, that almost wasn't the law's purpose. The law's purpose was to show us our sinfulness, to show us our need for something more. The Jewish law or your pagan conscience purpose was to point you towards the Lord. Now, if my Nissan leaf had a fault, 
and it doesn't, it's a wonderful little car, but if it had a fault, I wouldn't try to fix it myself. I'd go back to the dealership. And if they couldn't sort it, they'd go back to Nissan, I suppose. Same with us. If we can't live life as we should, we look back to our Creator for help. People who accuse Christians of needing a crutch to get through life are, in my view, quite right. My question for them is how are they doing? The modern approach to sin or missing the mark is often to deny its reality by legalising things or attributing our aberrant conduct to a mental illness. It's quite striking for me recently when the PM was commenting on the young man who slashed some people with a knife in a West Auckland supermarket. Did you hear it? She described him as evil. She went off script that day. Normally we'd say he was sick. Well, back to Romans 3.20. Well, rather than worrying about our own inability to be good, there is this righteousness from God that is apart from the law. And by righteousness, I mean goodness or godliness or purity. It's been made known to us. It's something new. What do we know about it? Well, it's a goodness from God, not from ourselves, that comes through faith in Jesus to all of those of us who believe in him. We who have faith are justified freely by his grace, which means by his undeserved favour. We've not done anything to deserve his kindness. He's been nice to us because that's how he is. He's nice. Well, what does justification mean? Well, it's a word bigger than wheelbarrow, so that by definition means it needs to be unpacked in its own right. Imagine this. I'm watching some football game in the middle of the night. Someone sneaks into my house, unknown to me, carrying a knife. And I see them before they see me. Fortunately, I was playing golf that afternoon and being a messy person, I've just dumped my clubs next to me. So I pick up my five wood and I subdue them until the police arrive. The driver's just a bit too heavy. If my behaviour was challenged, I would say, well, I'm justified to react in that way. After all, it's my house, and this chap carrying a knife shows he hasn't shown up to read the meter. Violence against me and my family is on the cards, so I've got my retaliation in first. To be justified as legitimately acting in self-defence, I need both the right to do what I've done and good reason. And the police and perhaps the court will have to decide if my reaction was proportionate. In other words, did I have good reason to do what I did? Now in Paul's context, justification is referring to being able to stand before God as a person who is innocent, a person who is sinless. Like Arthur Thomas, being considered legally innocent and so able to join 
as part of God's kingdom. Now, verse 24 up there, we are told that justification comes by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus. Now, in those days, I understood this until I did a bit of research on this, but if I was a slave, my master might well let me do a little bit of work on the side. I don't know, I might fold the newsletters at the local Christian church and they'll give me a few bob for that. And if I save up long enough, I might be able to buy my own freedom. And then once I'm a free person, then I might be able to buy my family back. That was called redemption. Our nearest parallel is the pawn shop. When you take your set of golf clubs in and you receive a loan in return. If the loan plus interest is repaid, then you get to redeem the clubs back. If not, the pawn shop just sells it and gets their money. In a way, Jesus' death on the cross redeemed us from the power of sin. We were bought back. Now Paul then goes on in verses 25 and 26 to unpack this even more. God the Father presented Jesus as a blood sacrifice of atonement. Now the word that's used for atonement here is the same word that's used in the um, Old Testament for the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was sort of the covering over the Ark of the Covenant. And when the high priest went in to sprinkle blood for the forgiveness of the people's sins, he'd splash some of the blood over the mercy seat. Paul is saying here that Jesus' blood was like the Lamb's blood. It's for the forgiveness of the people. He goes on, God did this, we are told, to demonstrate his justice because the sins committed before Jesus had not been addressed and now for the sins from that date onwards to show that those who trust in Jesus have been forgiven. This is the good news. In the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven and brought back into a right relationship with God our Father, redeemed and justified. According to verse 27, we can't boast about this because, hey, we didn't do it. Jesus justified us. We didn't do it ourselves. While we might be legally declared to be innocent, we are, in fact, still sinful people. And we'll be... All the time we're on this side of the grave. That struggle of sin is not yet over for us. Okay. That's the heavy bit. I want you to tell you a story about Peter and Diane. They met as young adults at the local church youth group and they were married. Peter was descended from a long line of faithful Christian people. So he was raised in the faith from the start of his life. It was mother's milk to him. His was a great heritage, but not without his challenges. His brother had died from a car accident in his 20s, and shortly after he left home as the youngest kid, his parents had separated. So they were a bit bruised. Diane, on the other hand, was a first-generation convert, 
Her parents had taken some persuading that their local Baptist church that she was now attending was not an offshoot of the Unification Church. It wasn't a cult. Her family was pretty okay, but most of its members were really concerned with their jobs, their careers, and getting ahead, and helping the kids to do the same. Peter and Diane had been youth leaders. They spent a lot of time in their 20s, pouring their lives into the youth and their church and were much loved for doing so. When she got to 28, Diane qualified as a teacher and was over the moon when she got pregnant. Peter had done an engineering apprenticeship and his career was gathering pace and by his early 30s, his employer had taken him in as a junior partner. They bought a house, had several kids, but they had to give away the youth work thing because life was just too busy and there wasn't the room to be able to do it anymore. They were at church about twice a month, were loyal supporters and were much loved. Well, one day their pastor Rod, nice chap, you'd like him, went to see them, see how they were going. Peter talked about how he didn't read the Bible or pray that much anymore, but you know, he still really believed. It was still, Jesus was still really important to him. Diane mentioned how much they gave to the church and how they tried to attend the service every week, but kids rep sport and one thing or another often clashed. Both expressed the fact that they tried hard to be good Christians, but often came up short. Pressure of raising kids, paying off the mortgage, the wider family expectations were really significant. Life was busy. Rod just nodded and listened. Unprompted, they assured Rod that they would attend more services more often and asked about possible home groups they could join. Rod thought for a moment and then he told them a story of a man who went on a cruise on the QE2 which he'd spent several years saving up for. And the day came that the liner was in town. So he boarded the ship with a lot of luggage, much more than the other passengers. The one drawback with this cruise was that he hasn't quite saved up enough money to buy a first-class ticket. So he brought his own food with him. While the other passengers ate very well in the restaurant, he gazed through the window looking at their steaks and linguinis and crepe Suzettes, and went back to his cabin to nibble on his cheese and crackers that he'd bought. Sadly, he didn't have enough money for pesto. Initially, that was okay. But after a week, he was really, really sick of cheese and crackers. But he had this bright idea. And he went up to chat with the ship's purser, you know, the chap who runs the programs. He explained the situation and asked, look, is there anything that I could do to help around the ship that would enable me to earn a few quid to buy some meals? You know, I could wash dishes or polish the anchor or something. Purser was a little bit puzzled by the man's request. He said, sir, can I see a ticket? He said, sir, your offer is very kind and not unappreciated but the meals come with the ticket. He was supporting himself when he didn't need to. It was all part of the package. It was all laid on. 
without realizing it, Peter and Diane had slipped into what we would call a works righteousness type of faith, which measures things on our actions and our efforts. They were living on their own cheese and crackers while ignoring the banquet down the hall in the galley. Romans is a rich field, and I'm going to stay here for a while, but it is hard work. The podcast is on the website, and we'll be uploading it to YouTube until we return to level one, and I've got a few spare copies if you want to sift through some of this stuff. Paul put it, I think, a little better in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. I want to read that to you now. For by grace, the goodness, the mercy, the kindness, the love of God, you have been saved through faith, through trusting in the Lord. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, not the result of trying hard, not the result of sweating it out, white-knuckling it, so that no one can boast. For we are what he made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, to do good, to be positive in our world, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Doing good in our church, listening to folk, teaching, befriending, being a good Christian citizen is great if it's as a result of our faith, not as a way to earn credit with God. We've got all the credit we need. Peter and Diane needed to lean into the grace of God a bit like that picture we had before about the chucking stones. Let God chuck the stones. Skim the stones. Rather than trying harder to be their idea of good Christians. And if this story resonates with you, then so do you. We cannot justify ourselves and we are fools to try. Jesus paid for the meals on the cruise a long time ago and he paid with his life. He paid with his blood. So us being slightly better punters is not going to add much. Now if you are someone checking out the Christian faith, you need to know that all of us entered through the low door. There is no way that you are not good enough for Jesus because he died to save all of us, even you. The most challenging thing I have found about believing in Jesus is to acknowledge that I'm a sinner, that I've missed the mark constantly, that I can't fix myself and that I need Jesus. As it says in the Bible, he calls you to take up his crutch and follow him. Let's pray. Lord God, your love for us is astounding. And there's not much we can say that measures up, even remotely. But thank you. Thank you that you cared for us. 
thank you that you have so much for us. And just help us to lean into you rather than into our own resources. To be a people who are faithful to your call, to follow you, limping as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.